Welcome to Conversations About Care, a podcast for pediatric clinical providers. Hi, this is Sandy Hassan, and I'm the Medical Director for the American Academy of Pediatrics Institute for Healthy Childhood Weight. And I'm excited to share today's conversation, which is part of our Clinical Practice Guideline Implementation Series. This podcast episode provides background on the informaticians responsible for the electronic obesity CPG pathway and highlights their interest in the HL7 FIRE app. This episode is designed for those who are not well-versed in clinical decision support tools and are interested in learning more. However, the episode does not dive deep into the specifics of the CPG pathway or the curbside interface, but there are resources to learn more about these on our website. Stay tuned. Well, I'd like to welcome everyone today to our podcast, and I'm so delighted to welcome Dr. Mona Sharifi. Mona is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Yale University School of Medicine and in Health Informatics at Yale School of Public Health. And I had the distinct pleasure of working with Mona on our Clinical Practice Guideline Writing Committee. So welcome, Mona. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to be here with you, Sandy. It's also my pleasure today to welcome Dr. Dan Imler, who's an Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Hospital Medicine at Stanford University and the founder of Curbside Medicine. And Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So because I'm delighted to have both of you here, I'm going to start with you, Mona, and just ask you, how did you get interested in obesity? You're on a writing committee. You're, you, it's a clinical interest of yours. And how, did, and how does health informatics fit within that interest? And how did you uh, end up doing both of those things? Really, it's, it's a complex story, but it, it probably has its starts way back further than any of us want to go today. <laughs> um, but I, I think I've always been somebody that's very interested in prevention. That's the way I found my path to pediatrics is that capacity we have, especially in pediatric primary care, to influence uh, health trajectories um, and, and family health. Uh, and so it was a natural um, extension to, to become very interested in uh, obesity, both in my care for for patients in the primary care setting, but also in my in my research. And I, as I've gone along, more and more of my research is focused on obesity because I think it touches on so many health behaviors and so many aspects of, of family health um, that there's, it just feels like a very rich area. And, um, and the collaborations with, with wonderful people studying uh, uh, obesity has, has been really um, a, a gift of my in my career. The informatics angle is 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 probably even more of a, a interesting and funny story. I when I was a medical student, I had full intention to become a you know a clinician, probably going into primary care. Never expected or had any interest in doing a whole lot of research. I actually participated in the Human Genome Project as a high school student and loved it, but didn't didn't see myself doing lab based research uh, for the rest of my career. So when time came in medical school to choose an area of research, I actually chose the field that I knew nothing about <laughs> um, because I was, I was sort of interested in learning more about what biomedical informatics was. Imagine that it would be, you know, a concentrated experience and I'd just leave it behind, um, but ended up working with um, Randy Miller at Vanderbilt, who um, at, at the time was really at the forefront of 
um, of the field of informatics and learned how to code uh, um, in, in the homegrown EHR system at, at Vanderbilt and just was fascinated by the ability to have this, you know, these tools that you could build in the EHR that could influence care. I got to work on a really neat project as a medical student and saw that, you know, my tool that I had designed and built got implemented in, in the surgical ICU and influenced care and, and outcomes. So that was, you know, my first peek into a whole new type of research and a whole new field. And, and you know, the rest is somewhat history, but my interests sort of collided with this CPG and uh, some of the work I've gotten to do implementing um, uh, obesity recommendations into the EHR to sort of facilitate uh, uptake of, of recommended care for children with obesity in primary care. Well, I would say it's very lucky for us that all that happened because we, we loved having you on the committee. So Dan, I know you're in pediatrics and hospital medicine, but I don't know a lot about curbside medicine. Can you tell us about your pediatric journey and your curbside journey? Sure. So I was one of those kids of the late 1990s who actually got a computer very early. I learned how to code when I was in high school um, and used that all through college and medical school to actually create small websites and whatnot. And when I was in medical school at Case Western, I got pretty excited about doing pediatrics through my time there and had started several small kind of uh, companies. One of them turned out to be a blogging company around healthcare that really continued to get me pretty excited about how, the, as Mona was describing, the interface between technology and healthcare could advance like the things I was seeing on my, in my medical school training. Um, then I did pediatric residency at, in, at Stanford, uh, subsequently did pediatric emergency medicine fellowship, and through all of that time, continued to be very involved in the informatics side of things. As I came out of my training and became a attending and then medical director of the PZD at Stanford, um, I became quite fascinated in behavior change, uh, especially around providers and the ability for technology to actually drive some of that behavior change. And that's what um, became the impetus for curbside health because there is some new technology around um, the EHRs that allow us to embed web applications inside of the EHR. And I saw a window where I could get into the point of care of the clinician's workflow and redesign how that clinician might think about um, and then act on the decisions that they're making. So that's what curbside became. It is what I would call a clinical effectiveness platform. It's a tool where clinicians can build workflows without having to code and then have those workflows embedded inside the EHR's applications that then other clinicians use at the point of care to make their decisions. Um, my sort of way of thinking of it is it's sort of like Google Docs for building clinical pathways. Um, that, and you can view inside the EHR. And what's gotten really excited is the new EHR app stores can allow you to do pretty advanced things such as place orders and push documentation between these third-party applications and the EHR itself. So it would, with this work, what we've been able to do is transcribe a standard CPG that's, you know, printed and, you know, a 100-page document and turn that into a true point of care application that a clinician can walk through in seconds rather than having to read the entire thing to get the data that they need. I, I was telling Mona that um, 
you know, as we said before, it took us five years to write the CPG. And we knew, honestly, uh, as long as that was, it was only going to be the beginning in getting the word out to clinicians and having the CPG be able to be used in the field. And the traditional sort of folklore about that is it takes 17 years to get something yeah. from, you know, the CPG. I just wrote it point to uh, usability. So I'm, I'm guessing that you're both hoping that what you're doing is shortening the time from publication to implementation. Uh, do you think that's going to happen with these tools? I, uh, I think that's the hope, Sandy, but, uh, but we can accelerate that timeline um, through these tools. I think there's so much potential, and I think we're all very excited to see where these, um, you know, smart on fire, these, uh, these tools that Dan has been talking about, where they'll take us. Um, and just to clarify terms a little bit, so um, the FIRE uh, stands for FAST Healthcare Interoperability Resources. Dan, did I get that right? That is true. But okay. people might think of them as APIs if they've ever heard of that term too. Well, well, FIRE is, is sort of the um, the standard for for kind of sending data across an API. Um, and APIs are basically what gets used to send information from one source to another source. So when you're on Facebook or um, whatever tool and you kind of seamlessly shift uh, into uh, another uh, web platform without even realizing that you left the first one, those are APIs that are sending data to the new new website. So the, the vision um, of, of uh, FIRE in the future that we hope we will be in is that there'll be lots of apps and tools that help kind of seamlessly integrate um, uh, resources into the EHR. So instead of each health system building and rebuilding and modifying work uh, that support decision-making, we have hopefully one sort of centrally updated clinical decision support tool. I think what often happens when we have guidelines come out is that everybody gets the guidelines, some small percentage of folks are excited enough about the guideline to try to get their local EHR analysts to build them a clinician clinical decision support tool. That clinical decision support tool may or may not be optimally designed. It may or may not be perfectly aligned with the, with the guidelines. It may or may not improve patient care. And we're learning more and more about the potential harms of EHR tools. We know interrupting workflows can have harm. We know that um, poor usability can increase burnout and, and fatigue among clinicians. So in that context, these fire tools just have so much promise because you can kind of focus your efforts and, and resources around optimizing one, um, one set of tools that are perhaps made in collaboration with CPG writing groups. So I think that's the um, what Dan and I and uh, others at the AAP are um, experimenting with here is can we start to align the writing of the CPG with the development of these clinical decision support tools um, so that we can more rapidly disseminate something that's vetted by the knowledge generators, the CPG writers, and also um, explored and tested for usability and, and uh um, that kind of alignment with clinical workflows. So now here, you're going to hear all my ignorance. So I'm looking at the beautiful algorithm on the CPG that you helped us write. 
and I'm I'm holding a pe- literally a piece of paper in my hand thinking, how am I going to get this into the electronic medical record? And in the very dark ages, uh, a colleague and I, Lloyd Work, actually put the previous recommendations into our electronic medical record. And uh, it was laborious. And, and I can't tell you uh, how many, you know, months and months and months it took. And it was just a unique product. We, we didn't have anybody else to talk to. We couldn't share it if people wanted it. It just was a, sort of sat there and it was very hard to update. And it was kind of, it, it was actually kind of clunky. So with this fire tool, is it a software tool? What is it? So, that we're talking about. I'm so, sorry to be so ignorant here, but what are we talking about here, Dan? Well, I would think of it this way, okay? Well, anybody who's been in medicine for a period of time has lived through exactly what you're talking about, especially a clinician, right? Where you have this idea of how you potentially would want to walk through a workflow, right? But translating that between what's in, you know, your decision tree or in your head into actions inside the EHR has been next to impossible. Right, because you're basically tied to the tools that exist there and tied to the people who control those tools. Yeah. One of the things that Mona was talking about, one of the big benefits of Smart on Fire is that basically what this is, it's in what we would call an interoperable framework. It's a, a standardization of a way that you can actually interact with the EHR. And the standardization around that happens to be using the web. So you can now basically build a web page that can access the data inside the EHR to then give recommendations. And what's also very keyly important, also make actions itself back into the EHR, like placing orders or placing documentation. So you now can redesign that that CPG inside of the EHR itself as a web page. So you can imagine whatever you want. That could be a chat bot, that could be a decision tree, that could be whatever is relevant for that particular activity. And I use that act, word activity very specifically because I think a lot of what we see moving towards in clinicians' actions is that we basically break our decision-making down into particular activities that we need to accomplish. I need to work up this patient for appendicitis. I need to treat this patient's Bell's palsy. I need to think about should I how should I evaluate this patient with obesity um, in terms of their need for bariatric surgery. Those are all different activities. And what you can now do is build specific workflows for each of those activities that can use the data inside of the EHR. That's what's what this world is really opening up. And that's what our tool is kind of built to do, is to give clinicians the ability to build that themselves rather than wait on the ISIT team, whose job is very important to control the infrastructure behind it, but shouldn't be modeling what the clinician knows that they want to build in terms of their own workflows. So once you, so we have the CPG and we have the algorithm, are we, are we talking here about building one set of tools for that or that people can all share? Are we talking about um, having like a skeleton that people can put other things onto? What are we actually talking about here? So what I, what I, so the AAP has created a standard way in a generalized format of how to approach this particular clinical context, right? That is not precise for each clinical site, nor is it precise for each clinical patient, okay. right? And I think what's really in the past, we've been stuck with this generalized framework of how to approach these disease processes. 
what these type of applications, like what curbside and potentially others can do is they can you they can codify the logic that's in that CPG and then create then use data to then precisely give the logic that's relevant to your site and your patient. So for instance, in the CPG that was created the, the application that was created out of the CPG of obesity, there's a generalized framework of that obesity that each institution can then take in take themselves. Mm -hmm. Customize for their location, wherever you want to refer that bariatric patient to whatever medications you think are important for your local situation, whatever's on your formulary, all those types of things you can then do. And then it actually uses the patient's data in real time to give the recommendations specifically for that patient. Those variables may be the age, the sex, what the BMI then is then calculated, what their past medical history is to give the exact precise recommendation for that particular patient, which obviously is incredibly valuable because no longer is it just one size fits all. It's, you know, just for you each time. So we don't lose the logic of that Mona helped us work so hard on, on the key action statements. We keep the logic, right? And then, then, we're we're able now to tailor and individualize what we're doing. Yeah, this that you can tailor exactly what that logic is for you, for right. your institution, right? And then that logic is automatically then tailored for that patient based on their data, plus choices that the clinician gets to make in real time because the data is not going to tell you the entire story, and you can't codify everything that's in that CPG into actual data itself. Some of it is up to the physician's decision-making still, which right. is asked to that clinician. So Sandy, I, I think if you visualize the algorithm um, that came along with the CPG, what, what Dan and team have done in partnership um, with the AAP Institute for Healthy Childhood Weight is to basically take that algorithm and put it into a dynamic format that um, that, you know, it's there in its raw form, but it's ready for personalization for um, the, the sites that might use it. So, you know, as exactly as Dan said, your, your um, clinic is not going to benefit from some general advice about refer to intensive health behavior and lifestyle treatment. You'd right. much more benefit from knowing the exact clinic and or exact set of community resources or bariatric surgery, metabolic and bariatric surgery um, program that serves pediatric populations. Uh, you would have the capacity to kind of get into um, the tool in a very usable way um, that, that, you know, and even folks without a whole lot of tech savvy can can kind of get into and, and modify that that logic to to extend it and allow it to be more specific to sort of what's happening at your local setting which i think is just very promising and interesting but the the way that curbside is set up is that you know you inform that logic and it updates that um what we call the user interface like the 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 visual that you see when you interact with the tools um, kind of automatically get updated for for the user, and and if if you uh, fully integrate the tools into the EHR, there's that dream of the seamless integration where you don't even realize that you're um, leaving your EHR, but you actually are. You're you're interacting with this um, curbside tool within your EHR. So I wanted to, so I wanted to just clarify the word logic because in my brain I'm thinking oh I have this wonderful algorithm. I don't want people to change 
the KASs and sort of the inherent logic within the algorithm, right? But I do want them to be able to uh, identify their specific resources they want to use or referral patterns they want to make or have it tailored if I'm seeing a 15-year-old patient with severe obesity or a 10-year-old patient with, you know, overweight. Is that what we're talking about? We maintain, we maintain the, the integrity of the algorithm, but we then um, connect it more fully into the world of the clinician and into the world of their context. So that's that, the way in the real world that it usually works. You do have the capacity to change all of the logic if you want to, because there may be things that your institution just simply does not agree with the, the Institute yes. for Healthy Weight. Um, and yeah. wants to change. So you can actually change the whole thing. You can create some of these from scratch. Like the, yeah. we're just talking about the one that the AAP has created, but you can create an entire one from scratch if you want to. And it allows you to do that. The other thing I would add in there too, is it's not a one and done either. Um, mm -hmm. The beauty of having it as a living, breathing corn of organism is that as if the Institute for Healthy Weight updates something, you immediately get it. It's not like it's the next five years until you see the next CPG before you get the next anything, right? It's immediately there. So that's kind of back to your idea that, hey, why do we do this in a very episodic every 17 year type thing? Yeah. Right? Why is it not a constantly breathing, living, instantaneous thing? Potential for learning from modifications over time is also, I think, very promising because there is the ability for the institute um, or for any kind of guideline committee to come back and look. What are where are the areas where there, yeah, you know, high level of modifications as as a signal of where there is lack of agreement or or concerns about aspects of guidelines, and then sort of natural experiments <laughs> that that you could potentially learn from of folks um, kind of doing, you know, different things. And I, I think that aspect of it is is pretty promising too, because we, we haven't really had that capacity before in, in our own homegrown individualized uh, implementations of, of clinical decision support. Well, you know, to that point and to others, I can think right away when we were writing the guidelines, the obesity um, medications were just coming out to be approved by children. And we we actually, as we were publishing it, more medicines were coming out that we couldn't include in the guidelines. And just a way to handle that now in real time is so important because they, if you referred back to the old sort of written copy, you'd be out of date immediately on medication. So this, you know, that's one big gap we've actually been worried about. How do we help clinicians Stay up to speed in real time when these things are happening so fast, yeah. and, and you can't rewrite the guidelines. You know, every two weeks, basically. You it's know. like a newspaper; you only get that one point in time when you read it. But nowadays, you can just go online and yeah. get constant updates. Right? Same thing. I think is going to be true here. Does this have any kind of implications for patient interfaces? This kind of um, where they can put in data and so forth. I'll. I'll um... Tell a little bit more backstory, if if because I think it might be interesting. So the um, this project actually started um, years ago before we found Dan and Curbside, um, with some interest from the Centers for Disease Control and uh, in partnership um, with the AAP in in figuring out how to more rapidly disseminate and spread effective uh, clinical decision support tools in the EHR. So our, our group has done some past work um, demonstrating in clinical trials that uh, clinical decision support can be helpful in improving 
um, practice and, and BMI outcomes to a small but significant extent. And so the thought was, how do you kind of remove some of these barriers to more rapid spread of these tools? Because we know, you know, you can publish your study, you can share screenshots, you can even use um, some new, new platforms from the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality called CDS Connect to try to, you know, share and make things more accessible to other sites. But essentially, it, it, it all comes down to how hard it is <laughs> to take uh, things that work from one system to another system. So the CDC was um, very uh, forward thinking and allocating some resources to help us think about how do we take these tools and spread them. Our initial iterations were all kind of a typical sort of health system mindset of, well, we'll build it here and then we'll figure out how to spread it. And very rapidly we realized that that just wouldn't work. Who's going to manage it? Who's going to maintain it? Once, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the folks that built it move on to other institutions, what happens? There's just so many barriers. And I think we've had past cases of, of clinical decision support tools that have been exclusively funded by research uh, um, that, that just really never go anywhere. And so that led us to, um, in, in uh, Jeannie Lindros and Jeremiah Salmon at the Institute for Healthy Childhood Weight were really active partners in, um, in kind of thinking about how do we do this? And, and they proposed the idea of a challenge. Um, let's put out a challenge to um, identify um, uh, companies that, that might be able to partner with us and, and sort of that have figured out this model of maintenance and, and rapid dissemination. And so after participating in a challenge, um, curbside health was was selected as the um, as the most <laughs> um, dedicated to pediatric care and the most um, advanced in their in their platform and their ability to both pull data from the EHR, but also to begin thinking about writing back data. So Dan mm -hmm. mentioned this this promise of orders and and uh, capacity to even kind of um, help with documentation that I think are all very promising. Um, in the kind of 1.0, very um, aspirational vision that we had for these tools, there was always a patient-facing component for the, the eventual FIRE apps. But way back when, when the CDC, even prior to my involvement, I want to give credit to Dr. Ali Goodman and others at the CDC that um, worked on, on this project with Georgia Tech students. We were co-mentoring Georgia Tech students who had some visions for these fire apps. So in, in those early visions, um, this patient-facing tool where you could potentially collect information, patient-reported outcomes, uh, basically from, from patients and families regarding health behaviors or other um, social determinants and risks, um, kind of maybe zip code information so that you could help connect families to local resources like green space or farmers markets and, and different different tools and opportunities there. So I know Dan has that on his radar <laughs> to build out in the future and think about, but I think those capabilities are forthcoming. They're not in there at a high level yet. There's some kind of local um, zip code based information like Dan has incorporated some nice search features to identify local bariatric surgery programs, for example, or local um, high intensity weight management programs. But uh, I think in the future, we'll be able to have kind of much more uh, in terms of the patient and family facing tools. The only other thing I would add to that is we have built into the system already the ability to share 
the pathway logic and the outcomes with it directly back to the patient. If the clinician wants to as well, you can actually text or email or print it out and give to them all the resources that come up. So it's not just the logic, it's not just informing the clinician, but it can also inform the patient themselves. As Mona described, there is a lot of other potential opportunities around here. And she's kind of describing this thing of observation of daily living, which is a patient's observations and how you codify those and bring those in. I think the other big thing that I'm very interested in, and we have some early work on this, but we have not brought it live yet, is around bringing in patient preferences to impact the logic mm -hmm. itself, such that the patient themselves can decide, hey, how risk adverse I am or how what resources I may potentially have, what I'm willing to do and have that directly impact the logic as it's going through to give those recommendations and let the clinician know where they may change different things based on those preferences. You know, it's so, it's, yeah, it, this is so exciting because it's, it, it's such a partnership with it in all things, but I know obesity and obesity with patients and families is such a partnership and there's so much information sharing that has to happen yeah. to make this go. The other place that we're really focused is the the teams, the both the clinical teams that are functioning maybe in your clinic, and then the teams you construct with the community uh, and and maybe the subspecialists. So what implications would you say this kind of uh, information informatics has for connecting both inter, you know, inter-hospital teams and then the teams that you're starting to build, pediatricians are starting to build with their communities and other uh, specialists? I'll, I'll take the beginning of this one. The, the first is that if there's sort of two parts to that. There's a time-based, when you're thinking about a cl clinical context, there's often a time base to it. So for instance, an obes a obesity visit is just one in a spectrum of visits typically around it. And often that team may change through the period of time. So it's nice to have a continuity of decision-making that's somewhere codified within the system, not just in whatever the patient, the doc wrote down at the very end of their you know, assessment and plan, right? So one of the ways to do that is to actually codify into the system, which this does, it'll allow you to take multi-step processes in there and you can come back and see what people's logic has, what, what people's decisions have, have done before and where you can go in the future. Yeah. And the, the second is even in real time to allow multi-different themes to be involved in that. It's not as true in um, this particular um, application because obesity tends to be relatively isolated in the outpatient environment. Um, but in other applications, it's much more poignant where potentially there's a transition of care between, say, the ED and inpatient, where the inpatient can see what happened in the ED and they can and they can see that logic inside of there. Um, I do think there's a big future around the coordination of care around those decision making things as well. Um, that I think is coming in the future. I don't know if you have other things to add. Yeah, I think I think there is a lot of promise there, and it, you know, our our work using tools within Epic for clinical decision support. We've done a lot of um, interviews and focus groups with uh, not only primary care clinicians but other stakeholders, like the um, you know other members of the care team in primary care, but also specialists. And we're definitely hearing that. Um, you know, we were surprised to hear how many medical assistants, nurses wanted to be able to see clinical decision support tools just so they could anticipate some of the decision making that was forthcoming. You know, being able to see, oh, the the um, the, the primary care clinicians likely to order um, labs on this patient based on the, the um, clinical decision support tools. So we were, you know, that was a modification we made in our implementation um, uh, uh, was to 
allow broader access than we initially intended um, for for accessing these tools. And I think the the um, you know the the way that curbside is set up within the EHR, you you know you could allow others, other members of the care team, other specialists to sort of access the curbside tab or the the curbside view and and sort of see you know where is this patient on the pathway, what have they gotten in terms of evaluation, what prior treatments have been tried, that that capacity is there. This sounds really incredibly promising, and it sounds like it's finally going to give the clinician a clinician's eye view, so to speak, like allow us to, to craft our workflows more how we think, uh, allow us to be flexible and with our teams, with our patients, uh, allow us to sort of get that workflow. Uh, I think of it like is to match what's always going through my head, you know, at the, you know, instead of being forced into some kind of linear uh, pathway that somebody else designed. You know, so uh, I really am very excited about it. So we, you know, we've we've sort of gone a little far afield, and we've talked about the big picture. But okay, I'm in my office, and I hear about curbside, and I hear about this, and I have the CPG. What do I do now? And what 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 are you hoping for in terms of the clinicians uh, using using curbside, and how do they access it? How does a clinician get started, and what do they do? Sure. So I think what we're we're still at the beginning of this journey about where this technology is actually going. Um, so a lot of what we're, we've been working with the AP Institute for Healthy Weight has been around what matters, what truly has value, and where we can go with this. So as such, there's um, a program that's been created out of there where individual institutions can have access to the curbside tool within their institution themselves, and we are happy to have um, extended conversations about that. That um, can range from simple just access on the web to use it sort of almost like a super calculator, which requires no EHR integration, um, but will then not allow you to use those tools such as ordering and whatnot, all the way to full integration of the EHR itself, which does take more time. It's a very different process than even three years ago. If this if we were talking three years ago, what we're talking about is basically impossible. Uh, it would take so much IT resources that it would, it would overwhelm everything. However, the new tools that the Epic and Cerner and some of the other EHRs have put out have made this a much more accessible thing for hospital systems to be able to do that level of integration. So what we're really looking for is people who are interested and can see the value of this um, to come in and we're happy to um, open that up um, for a period of time to allow their institution to use either the web-based version of it a dynamic link, which actually brings in um, the data and will give you answers based on that particular patient's data, similar to how Billy tool works, uh, or all the way into the EHR. Um, and we would have probably a little bit more of a conversation about that. So any contact that you want to have, we are happy to show you how the whole thing works um, and how relatively easy it is to get started on that. And we can put that, we can uh, give them that contact information via this podcast too as well. So um, what would you tell me if I was in, you know, a relatively small practice, if we're talking about hospital systems, what if I have four pediatricians and myself? Is this something we could use or we have to wait for our system to, to, yeah. to get? So we've already had conversations with many groups that describe that are exactly what you described. Um, and you can. 
Um, you may not have the capacity, you maybe you're on an ambulatory EHR, like eClinical Works or some other smaller EHR that doesn't necessarily have these capacities yet, um, but you still can use this tool on the web, um, specific for your institution and whatnot already, um, or you could get these dynamic links brought in. Both of those are totally possible. Um, and we're happy to talk through how that works. And that takes hours of time, not days or weeks of time just to make happen. So I, I just want to thank you so much for, for giving your time to, to sort of begin the conversation. And I feel like we just began a conversation here and uh, about what's, what's available. So I'm going to ask each of you, I'll start with you, Mona. What is your, your hope at this point? We have the CPG, we have the, the, you know, these tools that you're, you're, you're working hard to develop. What is your hope for the pediatricians in the near and then in the, in the farther future? What do you hope for now? that they can do and what do you hope for will happen ultimately? Yeah, I think my hope is that um, as a community, we can recognize that EHRs aren't going anywhere. They're part of our our uh, clinical care and clinical practice. And, and so um, my hope is that we can all kind of roll up our sleeves together and, and uh, focus on putting our energies towards these tools that have so much promise, right? So we we all have have gone through um, the experience of, of working so hard to, and you, Sandy, are nodding your head that you certainly have, I think Dan and I um, have, I, I think the experience generalizes of trying to make your EHR fit your workflow. And I would love to see even a fraction of that energy and effort um, fighting against the system uh, put towards proactive action to kind of make the system work for us. And I, I, I in my mind, um, investment and attention to these forthcoming tools and trying to shape and adapt them into more workable tools. So, you know, Dan um, is an emergency physician. Uh, he has incredible expertise in these tools and in, in how to kind of build them, but his clinical experience is limited to the emergency setting. And so what was really neat in working with him was were the opportunities I had to kind of, and, and other members of the team had to um, sort of help shift the thinking about, well, how would this work in primary care? And the receptiveness that Dan um, and his whole team at Curbside have had um, to, to kind of learn and grow from the experience and sort of shift and shape the tools um, says to me that, you know, if more of us <laughs> in primary care kind of got got engaged and, and you know, everyone's time is so thin, uh, and I know folks don't have a lot of time, but I think we often are reactive instead of proactive in our approach with the HRs. I would love to see, you know, over the next 10, 20 years, more folks getting excited about the promise of um, smart on fire tools and, and recognizing that, um, you know, some small investments in, in providing feedback, um, providing input into these tools with, with you know, good hearted companies like <laughs> Curbside that are really in it for the right reasons, um, that, that that will have returns uh, for not only us as individuals, but, you know, the whole health system and, and primary care delivery broadly. So, you know, and, and I'll just say it, it sounds like a essay I once wrote, which was called reclaiming the patient encounter. You know, it's sort of this reclamation of, you know, what, what we want to do in, and, and how to make that doable for us and for our patients and ultimately do the best for our patients. And I would certainly agree with everything you said, Dan, what is your sort of near term hope and, far out hope for the pediatricians out there? My near term hope 
is that clinical classically clinical decision support has not really it, it may have improved some outcomes, but it's not improved the lives and the workflows of clinicians. And my near-term hope is that we can relatively rapidly get to a point where the time that we're spending as clinicians is not just managing um, the kind of uh, relatively not well thought through, well designed approach to how a clinical workflow happens. Most EHR systems were built as billing or lab engines first, and then tacked on a clinical front end later on as it became evident that the entire system needed to go on there. They were de not designed clinician first. They were not thought through in that way at a fundamental level. And my hope is that now that we're opening up those uh, entities through the 21st Century Cures Act that's forcing a lot of this to happen, um, that we're going to relatively rapidly get to a point where it's very much clinician driven in terms of what our own day-to-day uh, -day workflow is. My longer term goal, I would say, um, which I talk to our residents all the time about, is truly um, getting back to what the value of what a clinician actually has to offer. We've basically over the last, it seems like 30 years, turned into basically brute force engines to get through like the day-to-day -day life of what it takes to actually move a patient through our clinics and the ED and the hospital. And we've moved away from what the core value of that clinician is, which tends to be edge cases and interactions with other humans, right? Mm -hmm. We're spending most of our time doing secretarial or automated work. And my long-term goal is a lot of that goes away, which may be a large percent of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis right now, um, but gets back to where our true value is, pathophysiology and human-human interaction. Yeah. Um, and let, let us spend our time and efforts on that and less determining, you know, which medication has most recently been approved about blah, 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 that we just need to add to this next patient's flow, right? Tools should be able to take care of that. We should spend our time on the things that we are truly valuable for. I will give one example of that classically in automotive industry. You know, if you think back to the 1940s and 50s, majority of people spent their time on the line, like stamping out things repeatedly over and over and over again. And they tended to be relatively low educated people doing that. However, nowadays, if you go into a Tesla factory, it's all PhD engineers who are working on the edge cases that the robots can't figure out. I see medicine really moving towards that model. We're no longer are we just going to be like filling out, you know, pre-authorizations. We're going to be spending our time on the complex person and extracting data from other humans, which the system just can't figure out. Yeah, and I, I, I think to me, what I'm hearing both of you say, it's the patient encounter, isn't it? It's that encounter with our patients and 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 what happens, and uh, and making room for the patient, for the family, for us to engage in that relationship that is often times the healing part of what we do. That's our healing, right? Yeah. Um, it's not filling out the pre-auth form. It's 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 that healing relationship that we're that that has sort of called us to medicine. So again, I can't thank you both enough. This has been wonderful. It's a great sort of start on our journey of uh, reclaiming our patient encounters. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for having us, Sandy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation today with Dr. Mona Sharifi and Dr. Dan Imler. I hope that you were able to take away some practical strategies on how to move obesity care and treatment forward in your practice. 
As a reminder, there are many resources to support your capacity building and CPG implementation efforts, which you can find on our website, www.ap.org slash obesity CPG. information, resources, or opinions expressed during the Conversations About Care podcast series are solely those of the individuals and do not necessarily represent those of the American Academy of Pediatrics. The topics included in these podcasts do not indicate an exclusive course of treatment or serve as a standard of medical care. Variations, taking into account individual circumstances, may be appropriate. The primary purpose of this podcast is to explore common themes related to quality pediatric care from the perspective of clinicians. This podcast series does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Advertising, which is incorporated into, placed in association with, or targeted toward the content of this podcast without the expressed approval and knowledge of the American Academy of Pediatrics podcast developers is forbidden. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast.